Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Our scripture today comes from John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, verses 1 through 14. It is our custom at Kings to stand for the reading of scripture. If you are able, please stand and read with me. Jesus says these words to the disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, if we were in church and the children were coming forward for the children's sermon, I would have a map and a compass. And this is what I would say to the children. If you're going on a trip, you need to know where you're going and how to get there. I have two things with me this morning that you might need to help you find your way when you're traveling. I have a map and a compass. I'm sure all of you have seen a map, but perhaps some of you have never seen a compass. The map you show you where you want to go, and the compass points you in the right direction. The compass shows you whether you are going north, south, east, or west. I heard about a lady who was taking a group of children to a soccer game in another city. She knew the right road to take, but she became confused and turned east instead of west. They had traveled for almost an hour before one of the children told her that they were going the wrong direction. When we're trying to find your way through the journey of life, we need some help in finding the right way to go, don't we? Each day we face many decisions, and it's sometimes hard to know which way to turn. Some people use their feelings. They say, I'm going to do this because it just feels like the right thing to do. 
Well, that's no good. Our feelings may change from day to day. And and just because we feel good about something doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Some people make choices by what's popular. Have you ever tried to convince your parents to let you do something by saying everybody's doing it? Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. There is one sure way to know if we're going in the right direction in life, and that's to follow Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We know where we want to go. We know we want to go to heaven, and now we know the way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us each day as we journey through life to follow Jesus because we know he is the way, the only way. In Jesus' name, amen. In the late 60s and early 70s, there was a study done in Stanford. And uh, they studied small children, ages about three and a half to about five and a half. And this experiment, you may have heard about it, was called the Marshmallow Experiment. A Dr. Mitchell took a group of children and He put them in a room with a marshmallow and he told them, you can eat this marshmallow or if you wait until I come back, I will give you two marshmallows. Some of the children, of course, gobbled the marshmallow right up. Some waited a little bit and then ate the marshmallow and some, yes, waited until Dr. Mitchell came back. Years later, when they were adolescents, they found out that the children who had waited for the second marshmallow were more successful, had higher SAT scores, and were going to finer colleges. And they asked themselves, well, what what skill, what trait did these children have that the others didn't? And they developed the term delayed gratification. These children were willing to put aside what they wanted right now to get something that they wanted to get in the future. Well, that's really what Jesus is talking about here. There's there's three sections to this passage. And the first section, Jesus is telling the disciples about heaven. And then he makes it very clear that they are not yet going to heaven, that he's going to prepare a place for them and bring them back with him when he returns. And then he leaves very clear instructions as to what the disciples are to be doing until Jesus returns. Jesus is asking us to put aside what we want right now for something that is much more pleasurable and desirable in the future. The passage we read in John, John 14, is often read at funerals particularly that first line, let not your heart be troubled. Really what it's saying is, is don't worry. Reminds me of this story. Sometimes if you just wait, problems will take care of themselves. J. Arthur Rank had a system for doing that. He was one of the early pioneers of the film industry in Great Britain, and he also happened to be a devout Christian. Rank found... He couldn't push his worries out of his mind completely. They were always slipping back in. So he made a pact with God to limit his worrying to Wednesdays. 
He even made himself a little Wednesday worry box and he placed it on his desk. And whenever a worry cropped up, Rank wrote it out and dropped it into the Wednesday worry box. Would you like to know his amazing discovery? When Wednesday rolled around, he would open the box to find that only about a third of the items he had written down were still worth worrying about. The rest had managed to resolve themselves. If you have a troubled heart, ask God to give you a new perspective. Also ask him to give you the patience so that you do not jump ahead and worry about a problem that may never come. But most important of all, ask God for more faith. Faith in God is the best remedy for all our problems. Jesus put it plainly. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, when I was a little boy, I remember that the verse in the King James Bible didn't say in my father's house are many rooms. It said in my father's house are many mansions. And here's a true story that might give you a chuckle. When the Revised Standard Version of the Bible was first published in 1952, a North Carolina pastor was so disturbed by the new translation that he gathered up all the copies he could find and actually had a public Bible burning. What upset the pastor so much was the King James Version of John 14 says, In my father's house there are many mansions, and the RFSV translates, In my father's house are many rooms. And the North Carolina pastor was infuriated at the cheapskates who translated the RSV. He said that he had been promised a mansion in the sky in the King James Version, and nobody but nobody was going to cheat him out of it. Well, you know, I can appreciate his sentiment. I sort of miss that old word mansions myself. It took for a while for me to get used to the newer version. I finally made the switch to the newer version, but I stopped and tried to visualize what a house with many mansions inside of it would look like. I can picture a house that is a mansion, or I can picture a community of mansions. But for the life of me, I can't picture a house with many mansions inside it. My affection for the older translation was based on familiarity and sentimentality rather than thought. And I came to believe that this was another case of putting our minds into neutral and our tongues into high gear and reciting words without ever really considering their meaning. The problem is that we're not quite sure just how to translate Jesus' words on this occasion. The Latin in the Vulgate rendered the word mansio, which means a halting place, a way station. Hence our English translation, mansion. Presbyterians call their parsonage the manse, and the British Methodists use the word in the same way. But none of these are quite what we mean by the word mansion today. English words change in their meaning. It is said that when someone first viewed Sir Christopher Wren's masterpiece, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, he said it was awful and artificial. What he meant was that it was awe-inspiring and full of artifice. He was saying good things about it, not criticizing the architect. Language changed. So mansion, which originally meant a dwelling place, came to mean a governor's residence or a palace. 
And the New Revised Standard Version says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. That's pretty close to the original meaning. What we need to take away from this is that God has a place prepared personally for you. Let me say that again. God has a place prepared and personal to you. I, you know, I collect jokes about heaven. And I love the jokes where all of the Methodists are playing cards and all the Baptists are drinking and dancing. And then the Episcopalians are sitting in wooden chairs because they did all their sinning while they were on earth. But I saw a cartoon the other day in a Christian magazine, and it really stuck with me. St. Peter is welcoming each person standing in line to get to heaven, waiting to peer in the book of life. Anyway, in the cartoon, each person comes up to Peter and announces the denomination to which they belonged on earth. Catholic says the verse first, Baptist says the second, the next two say Methodist and so on. And each person was then pointed toward a door with the name of their denomination inscribed above. By the way the cartoonist drew the picture, you could see not only what's on this side, namely Peter the desk, the book of names and the long line, but you could also see what's on the other side. In fact, all the doors were part of the same facade. They all opened to one place, heaven. No, I'm not saying that there are many ways to heaven. I'm saying that Jesus is the only way into heaven. And we divide what we believe Jesus to mean, to say, and to ask us to do into different categories. It's what I, I say in my adult Sunday school class. There's no second question to get into heaven. The first question is, did you know Jesus? Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. And as you start to go into heaven, St. Peter says, oh, stop. And there's a second question. Were you baptized as an infant or an adult? Did you have grape juice? Did you have wine? Did you have bread or matzah? No, there's no second question. The only question you need to know, the only answer you need to know to get into heaven, is did you know Jesus? So the first part of the text we read today establishes that God has a personal place prepared for you. And the second part establishes that the only way to get to that personal place prepared for you is through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the third part is perhaps the most difficult because Nobody likes to wait. Nobody likes to stand in line. Nobody likes the unknown. And yet, Jesus gives us instructions for that as well. Believe in him, he says. He says, do the things that I did. And then we have to ask, what is it that Jesus did? Well, he healed the sick. He helped the poor. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. If you need a review of this, just look at the end of Matthew chapter 24 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says, do the things that I did. And then he finishes with this wonderful, wonderful concept that if we ask things in his name, 
God will respond. Jesus says, pray expectantly. Well, what does this mean for us today? I'd like to share with you a a story of a man who was a pastor. And this man served the same community for over 50 years. He served God and the community faithfully. And he was not only their pastor, but he was their friend and an inspiration in Christian living. The roads were never so bad that he would not go out and sit and pray with one who was journeying through the valley of the shadow of death. The nights were never too cold to keep him from going to some God-forsaken saloon to help a drunken husband home to his wife and children. He was the one they sought out in times of trouble. He was the one they called on to perform their marriages. He was the one they wanted to baptize their children. He was the one who comforted them when they had to bury a loved one. He was their pastor, their shepherd, and they loved him as much as he loved them. One Sunday morning, when it was time for church to begin, he wasn't there. As he had grown older, he had sometimes slept late, but never been this late before. Finally, one of the members, Andrew, went next door to the parsonage to remind him that it was time for church. Andrew knocked on the door and there was no answer. He pushed the door open and he found the old pastor slumped over his roll-top desk with his head resting on the open Bible. Andrew walked back to the church and down the aisle to the front of the congregation. He took off his hat and with tears glistening in his eyes, he said, we won't be having church today. Why not, someone asked. Where's the pastor? He's gone, Andrew said softly. He's gone home. There never was a funeral like that one. People from all over the county came to pay their respects and to lay a flower upon his grave. On his tombstone, they simply engraved the words of the blacksmith. He's gone home. I believe in heaven. I believe in a heaven of continued growth. I believe in a heaven where we'll be reunited with our loved ones. I believe in a heaven that is our eternal home. And you can claim that heaven as your own when you give your heart to Jesus Christ. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior? I'm reminded of a picture that was on the wall of my Sunday school when I was growing up. It was a a pen and ink picture, and it had a big canyon. And on the left side of the canyon, it said man. And on the right side of the canyon, it said God. And it was clear from the picture there was no way to get across the canyon. And then in the next picture, there was a cross. And the two arms of the cross connected man to God. And on that cross was written Jesus. Jesus died for each of us. He is the bridge for fellowship for us to God. Just like he said in the scripture, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Today would be a wonderful day to give your heart to Jesus. 
If you've already given your heart to Jesus, then you have to ask the question, am I following the directions? Am I believing? Am I doing the things that Jesus did? Am I praying expectantly? Am I living a life such that when my life on this world is over, without a shadow of a doubt, the people that know and love me will say he's gone home? And finally, are you a person of expectant prayer? Do you celebrate and share God's miracles in your life? Because I want to go back to the beginning of this passage. Not only did Jesus promise a place prepared personally for you, but he promised he's coming back. And Jesus keeps his promises. Amen.